wedding, Jim. But not as we know it. How dare you? Zero. Four. It is 20 minutes past six on Friday, the 21st of April, 2023. And you are listening to the Bashcast. Coming up in this evening's Bashcast, Tom goes to Portugal, sees some naked people and gets diagnosed with ADHD, the unfortunate tale of a messy wedding, a headbutt and a stolen coat, bet histories, this is Football PL, we look at the Ireland-France match and where the player XG normalisation edges really exist. Steamers, are they an edge? Two contradictory analyses and a new bookie bashing tool. And we finish with story time. The story of the hole-in-one betting coup. All of that and more coming up in the Bashcast this Friday evening. The title of today's podcast comes courtesy of Gary V. Gary Vaynerchuk, who's one of these self-help um, gurus, these Tony Robbins-style kind of think-wealthy-get-wealthy morons that for some reason pop up on my YouTube feed every time I open it up because I think I may have watched one or two of them and then YouTube just thinks I just want to see them all the time but I watch them because they're a car crash this guy's amazing you should should see him but you also shouldn't and he did come up with um, the title of the podcast but he also comes up with things like you know, um, he you had more time off last weekend than he did in his entire 20s his entire 20s he did nothing from 22 to 30 including Saturday or Sunday of just working 15 hours a day work, 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 work well guess what Gary Vee, working harder isn't always the answer. And working isn't always the answer as well. I'm not saying you shouldn't work. I'm certainly not saying you should work all the time. What happens if you die at car crash at 29? What a waste of life that has. And that kind of advice can damage people for years. And look, the amount of people that get extremely wealthy in the manner that he is advocating is very few. And a lot of it actually comes down to the roll of the dice and luck. It really does. A lot of people are just... The, the amount of people that are wealthy that were just in the right place in the right time, and there's a self-confirmation bias in those people that they think that they deserved it, but a lot of them, a lot of people deserved it and didn't get it, and a lot of people got it and didn't deserve it, especially baby boomers, baby boomers, which is sort of a generation that I have a Venn diagram crossover into. You know, don't think you were good when you were as lucky as you possibly could be during economic times. And one of the issues I have with Gary Vee especially is that he was wealthy, very wealthy, because he inherited a multi-million pound wine business from his parents. So look, let's take Gary Vee's advice, okay? 
for your entire 20s, 22 to 30, do nothing, even on a Saturday or Sunday, no Coachella, no new car, no no jewellery, no travel, do nothing but work, Um, 15 hours a day, and if you can do that and you have the right mindset, oh, and also if you can inherit a multi-million pound wine business, then you will be successful. But um, one of the things he did say was, um, what is the ROI of your mother? Which just tickles me. It really does. I spat my wine out when I heard that. I quite like what is the ROI of your mother. I've been telling everybody I meet within the first couple of minutes that quote, as well as telling everybody I meet within the first couple of minutes that I have ADHD. At least I, I was diagnosed that over in Portugal by a friend of mine who's a GP that was staying in the same villa as us. Not an official diagnosis just like a random test i think anyone can do on the internet but it's good enough for me because it explains everything now it explains why i have to have go through so many hurdles and hoops of like what to do with my keys positioning and phone in the house otherwise i'll just lose it why the you know um why i'm i can spend hours and hours and hours and 15 hours concentrating on a project that I love and I can't spend 10 minutes on a on a concentrating on a project that I hate. And all of these just little traits of ADHD start to make sense. The one thing that I don't particularly have, I don't think I have the a lot of the negative anxiety traits, but maybe looking in my past, I might have done then. And I just came up with ways of dealing with it and solving it, assuming that I do have it. I hope I do, because the last 100 people I've met, I've told that I do have it. So it's just going to be quite a lot of backtracking now if that uh, turns out not to be true. It's just, it's just cool to be sort of labelled, to have a thing. I've never had a thing before, other than a bad leg. Um, so we were over in Portugal for my wife's 30, 40th, courtesy of Oki Stridham. Well, I had 40 smackaroonies on it, 250.0 on the exchanges outright to win back in um, November or December for the Alfred Dunhill. Um, so thank you very much to him. I transferred that winnings essentially straight from the from the exchanges to Airbnb and then just got that villa for a bunch of friends and all the kids to run around together. One of the 10-year-olds is loving just going around to all of his mates saying that they got a villa in Portugal on the Easter holidays courtesy of, courtesy of a bet. He's loving it. He knows what time it is. Um, so Portugal, very hot. The um, typical British abroad trying to get changed on the beach, towels wrapped around us, and then the 60-year-old naked people just walk past. Like, oh, we don't care. It's all hanging out. And I'm like, God, I wish I had. I wish I didn't care that much. But then you could hardly do that down the high street in Worcestershire, could you? So it was a nice trip away in Portugal. There wasn't a bash cast the week previous to that because um, my sister got married to her wife and the wedding was just fantastic. We were very much an integral part of the wedding. My young son was the best man. He even did a little speech. How cute is that? My daughter was the um, the maid of honour or the bridesmaid or I don't actually know the terms for, the, for that side of the thing, but she got to walk down the aisle with the brides before the chapel service um, and... Um, it was an amazing day, and I had the official title of um, Master of Drinking, and it was very, very important to do this because um, not enough people in my close family take their drinking as seriously as I do, and I'm fairly disappointed in that, but uh, I more than make up for them, and so I was taking that role and responsibility quite seriously from a very early point in the day. Um, Then just sort of that midpoint between right we're now going to step on the accelerator things are getting loose um all the kids are playing my son's 
cousins or the second cousins from Canada were over and he ran at them playfully and the kid stepped out of the way and my son ran into the wall at full speed and he headbutted and he got one of those eggs on the forehead. Well, I've never seen anything like this in my entire life. It swelled, it swelled up so much. Um, and I, 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 you have to snap out of the drinking and go, right, this actually needs a little bit of thought here because we took him to the bridal suite. It took him a long time to calm down and you've kind of got to make that split decision. Is the rational thing to do here to go and get medical attention, which is going to remove us from the wedding setting for a considerable amount of time? Or is it okay? Is he safe? And if he is safe, am I making that decision selfishly because I want to get back to it? And you can, you can get yourself in a little bit of a muddle about it. I mean, it's difficult to make an assessment without medical training. Decided just to go with it. Um, and I think he's okay. Like, it's three weeks later, he's still alive. But we go back into the wedding and... Um, um, things are getting looser. My sister runs a CrossFit gym. A lot of the CrossFit members were there. At one point during the evening ceremony, um, somebody, one of the girls, locked my arms behind my back whilst another one of the girls had a shot of green spirits and was forcing it down my neck as one of the lads was holding my jaw open. Now, in many circles, cultures and societies, that might be considered assault, um, but okay, let's just run with it. The other thing I'd say is spirits and shots especially are never a fun idea. What's the point of them? They don't particularly taste nice. They accelerate drunkness, and drunkness isn't fun. You know, merriness is fun. Getting a bit loose is fun. Drunkness ain't that fun. But it, So I think I went from zero to 100 quite quickly. The night carries on. Uh, I think my family start to dissipate um, because Jen's got to take the kids away. They're too young to stay up late, late. Uh, my parents are in their mid-70s, so, you know, aunties and parents and people start getting away. So I'm sort of, I think, one of the last standing family members. And um, right towards the end, I noticed that somebody had the very similar coat to me. So similar that they'd taken my coat and left theirs on the seat next to my seat. I had this, like, long grey coat that's sort of three-quarter length coat and inside it was my wallet and my mobile phone and the keys to the cottage that we were staying in nearby so it, you know when you're just a little bit merry plus maybe merry squared a little bit loose at the end of a, a wedding and something negative can happen that if you were sober, you'd just be like, oh, well, we'll sort this out. It just annoyed me. It just annoyed me that I didn't have my mobile phone, the keys to the cottage, uh, my wallet. Couldn't buy any more drinks, like last drink. Oh, somebody bought me a drink or whatever. But, like, can't order a taxi, can't get back to the cottage, which is maybe a couple of miles away. And I do have a little bit of a bad leg, so I'm going to have to hobble that in a kilt in the middle of the night. And I think I got just in a little bit of a grump. Like 30 minutes to go. I was like, who's this arse that's stolen my coat? Or and He probably he hasn't stolen it. He just thinks that my coat is his coat. But, you know, it's not. Uh, why isn't he thinking? Um, his coat was nice enough. It wasn't exactly like mine. It was similar enough that I understood why he swapped it or took the wrong one. But that didn't help me with my wallet and my keys and everything. Anyway, I found somebody in my sister's wife's family my in-laws or is that my in-laws no it's my sister's in-laws in their family that I didn't really know but they offered to drive me back to the um cottage so I didn't have to walk with my 
bad knee and my bad leg. So I was like, okay, well, I'm a bit annoyed. It's a bit of a downer on the night. But what I'll do is I'll take their coat, and at least they've got my coat, I've got their coat. We can meet up and do a direct swap. It's just an honest mistake. It's just an accident. Don't need to be that mad with them. So they, I get taken back to the cottage, go into the cottage. Wife and kids are sleeping there. Of course, I have to wake Jen up. and like, You won't believe what's happened. Look at this. Look at, the, look at what I'm wearing. Uh, somebody has left their coat. So I've now got somebody else's coat. They've got my coat, which has got my keys in it. It's got my phone in it. It's got my wallet in it. And it's just something that's going to have to be sorted out in the morning. And Jen was like, well, just, just go to turn the light off. We'll sort it out in the morning. And I was like, well, can, can you believe they've done it? And Jen, long suffering, just just go to sleep. It's not, we're not, you're not going to solve it now at 1.30 in the morning, are you? So, oh, yeah, yeah. so I hang the coat up and um, get into bed and I fall asleep. And I wake up in the morning and the first thing that I think is, God damn, I've got a palaver of sorting this bloody coat out before I can actually do anything today because I've got, got to get hands on my wallet and I've got to check out of the cottage with the keys and I need my mobile phone as well. So, I mean, like that, that's like literally the first thing that you wake up, you haven't even opened your eyes and you're like, okay, I've got to sort that. So I sort of get up, go downstairs, have a coffee, go back upstairs. I'm like, right, is there any evidence of whose coat um, this is? And I get the coat and I put my hand into the middle co- pocket and out I pull my own mobile phone. That's right. It was my own coat all along. I was so annoyed from about 11.30 till 1.30 at the end of my sister's wedding that somebody had stolen my coat and left me with their coat, whereas the entire time it had always been my coat. I blame the shots. I blame the shots for all of that mess, other than the coat incident, which was traumatic at the time, and looking back at it, just makes me feel like a moron, but I'm blaming the ADHD. Other than the coat incident, it was a fantastic wedding, and muchos congratulations to my sister and her wife, who are over in Thailand, enjoying the spoils of their honeymoon right now. Bet history's time. So I want to talk about bet history's. In horse racing, there is one particular one, a big one, that I really want to focus, discuss, break down a bash cast about. It's not going to be this week. Um, That particular fox's tail that I want to talk about, the big story, the Bear Force One, is just going to be postponed at the moment. It's like a bit of a bad dream. So I'm going to stay quiet. It's going to be migration to another episode when it's more appropriate. Until then, we'll just tie it up with an astral bow and discuss football instead. Um, I find the football stuff more interesting because there's a little bit of reasoning and decision-making sometimes. I used to do the PL bet history breakdowns a lot more frequently, 150 or so episodes ago when we didn't have any listeners. And here we are, 150 episodes later. And we still don't have any listeners, but I do them a little bit less frequently. But I felt like if I did this, it would at least make me kind of recall the decision-making behind why I took what I took. Maybe it won't. Maybe I'll just say, huh, that that one. Um, the average odds I'm betting at for football here are, of the winners, 
are what are they? Where's average odds? Like four point zero. I'm only going to discuss the winners because there's a lot of bets, and I'm not going to sit through three of every four bets saying bet on this and it lost because that's too much. Uh, and so I'm deliberately cherry picking the winner. And so um, if you don't want to hear cherry picking winners, there's a timestamp below. You can move on to the next segment. But this segment, I'm going to look at um, what I've been betting on on football online since about the 27th of March, um, which was roughly the last podcast, something like that. Mm, where's the where's this where's the column with the PL? Ah, okay, I found that I'd hidden the column with the PL. Uh, it's uh, two nine five five point three nine. Oh, wow! Like uh, forty four pounds sixty one pence shy of three thousand pounds on the footy. Um, so let's just see if there's a few interesting ones, and I can sort of see why I did what I did. Uh. Republic of Ireland versus France. Always interesting taking these internationals, especially an international, I think, where um, one team is more likely to score than the other team. So at least in this UEFA nation stuff, we've stopped stopped doing, for the most part, Germany versus Faroe Islands. So I can't model Germany versus Faroe Islands with any certainty because I don't really have that much conviction in how I'm splitting home and away XG. How, how can you model the probability of the Faroe Islands to score against Germany when it, their XG will be 0.1? It's a really difficult thing to do. Um, there's not a lot of sample size to draw from in those kind of games. So I don't like them. But then at the same time, there is the counter argument that, well, the traders don't like them either. Nobody likes those kind of games. They're really difficult. And, and of course, what if Germany send out their... C team or their A team just don't care and they let a goal in. There's a lot going on that is almost outside of the modeling mathematics that need to be incorporated to a thing like Germany versus um, the Faroe Islands. But this was Ireland versus France, so it wasn't quite as one sided as that. The Irish, famous for just bet the unders in every single game, they never score, they don't let many in, but this was. France. Um, I had been looking at the unders in this. I I was deliberately targeting the unders because, well, it's Ireland. Uh, I didn't find much value anywhere, but then I saw um, France to win to nil in the winner in both teams to score market. I was getting up at 2.56 going for that. And um, I think the fair odds... Over here, yeah, 2.32. So it was a fair enough bet. Um, this was um, 23 minutes before kickoff. I managed to get this um, traded out as well. Um, France won that game 1-0. What was interesting about that game, though, I looked afterwards, is I was looking at all of the players. Not I was looking at the unders not just for the match, so like under 2.5 goals and nil-nil at half time, which came in but I wasn't on it but it was one of the bets I was considering I was just trying to think of everything unders related um, and I was looking at the AGS table and I was comparing the AGS of all the players against my AGS this is after kickoff so we had well it wasn't we there was pretty much consensus that the XG in this game was about 
2.62, something like that. So the spreads had buy sell lines of 2.55 to 2.75. Uh, the bet 365 over under for 2.5. Was um 1.95 on the over, 1.9 on the under, maybe suggesting fair odds of about 2.03 with the margin applied there. The exchange was trading over 2.5 with 2.02 to back, 2.04 to lay. So all of that suggests with a inverse Poisson relationship uh, and the nil-nil bias included was about a match XG of 2.63. So we're getting 2.63 goals in this match. That's what everyone is saying. If you add up all of the XGs of the players that are starting on the pitch, now how do you get an XG of a player that is starting on the pitch? You take the fair price, which towards kickoff in games like this is the exchange price. Not necessarily the lay. It's, it can be either the midpoint, the last traded price, the back, the lay, something like that, depending on the logic and the liquidity of each market. And this was actually liquid on all 20 outfield players. You take them and you reverse or inverse Poisson relationship on the price. So, for example, Kylian Mbappe was 2.04. That's an XG of 0.671. So we can add up all of the XGs for those 20 players. And that gave 2.78 starting for the match. Now, the consensus is that the match is 2.63. The exchange is saying 2.78, but that's not even including substitutes. You've got to factor in substitutes as well. So let's go with our default of 9% of goals are scored by substitutes. In fact, we can reality check this because um, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 substitutes came on in the 65th, 77th, 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 81st, 86th, and 92nd minutes of a 95-minute match. That meant that substitutes played for 8.1% of this match. So 9% of goals being scored by substitutes isn't outrageous. Obviously, more goals are scored towards the end of the match than the beginning of the match, but we're in the right ballpark. You know, we're not wildly off. Even so, the starting 20 are getting an XG of 2.78. The match XG is 2.68. Add on 9% of goals coming from substitutes. You've now got about the exchange AGS market is suggesting that there is... 3.1-ish goals in this match. It's massively off by about 20 to 30%. No, 15 to 20%, 17%. 17% um, off, which is a significant amount. All of the player prices were too low in this game. Mbappe at 2.04, we made him 2.28 after normalization. And this is when normalization comes in to its own. It really does become powerful because our prices when we normalize the team news on the player xg tool force the players to sum to the match xg and the match xg is the liquid price when the exchange is dotting around all over the place with the ags's it's getting something wrong and when you add up the xg's from the ags of mbappe 2.04 Giroud 2.82 griezmann 3.7 uh Colomani, 3.8, Rabio 7.6. Add them all up and you get 2.077 for France. It's too much. The prices are too low. They're expecting too many goals. There's not going to be as many goals in the match as that AGS market is suggesting. And so lay it all. Lay every player. It ended up being Pavard with the only goal in the game. I was on him last night in the Champions League as well. Uh, he didn't get that one. He did get this one. Uh, he was 37.4. Um to get a goal 
in that match with a match XG of 0.029. Laying everybody in that game was plus EV. And actually, the way that the normalization on the player XG tool is set up, it generally is the case that the, the, the sum of the players on the exchange does equal the match XG, so you normalize it, nothing really changes. Occasionally, the exchange in the AGS market is way too optimistic, uh, as it was in this game. The XG was just too high. There was too many goals in that anytime goals. I mean, imagine if they had 1.01 for every player. That means there's going to be 100 goals in the game, right? And imagine if there are 100 to one for every game player it means that there's gonna be no goals in the game so they've got to get that some of the players has got to be right and the player's cheap tool is so powerful because it's throwing up games where the sum of the starting players is just proving that there is value on the exchange there just is value on the exchange um now whose value is a little i mean i'm not laying pavard at up at 40 but i might be laying mbappe down at 2.04 didn't lay anyone in this game have done in subsequent games but i'm more obviously backing is more um fun than lane that's just a fact we all know that um and there are games out there where the exchange is pessimistic meaning the the exchange thinks that there are fewer goals if you sum up sum up the ags market than there actually are so that means that when we normalize the prices and you can see this in the player xg tool all of the normalized ags prices are generally either above the exchange or below the exchange and when they match the exchange okay there's not much there there's not much edge there let's go to a different market let's have a look at fgs two plus three plus but when the exchange is wrong it's it's fun time and it's time to start laying if you're sadistic or backing if the exchange is pessimistic um and um you know we think that for example harland is 2.3 um and you can get 2.5 2.6 on the exchange well now it's fun time so this is kind of like a learning experience that i've been going through with the normalization on the player xg tool and i finally found a really fun angle that it's kind of like mathematically proven. There's no debate that this is exactly where an edge on the exchange exists. The, the AGS market on the exchange for some games is simply too pessimistic and on other games it's too optimistic. And in both cases, when it doesn't sum to the match XG, we get to play. So that was the France game. I found that quite interesting. In the Bournemouth game, um, what happened here, this was Bournemouth versus Fulham. I just had Bournemouth to win and both teams to score at six point um at six point two. Which column is the correct column? Excuse me. Yeah, six point two Ferrods and that were five point eight. It was thin. Not much to talk about there. Bournemouth won that. Two one. I had um Arsenal to win both halves against Leeds. Um one of these shorter both halves prices, three point one five. Um two point eight one. Was the fair odds on that? Uh, Jesus got a penalty in the 35th minute and then Arsenal ran that one out 4-1. So that was fine. Newcastle Man United. Um, I bet on the match result um, market, which is not something I have an edge on um, at Bucky Bashing unless we're looking at steamers. But I don't think Newcastle steamed in on this. I just didn't think it was... It was... Um, it was always oh, in play. That's why. Um, I got an in play... 2.48 uh, watching that match um, in the pub 
I mean, was it because I was a Newcastle supporter? I was, no, genuinely, let's go through it. It's, I mean, yes, I pay more attention because I'm a Newcastle United supporter. However, I think watching that match at that time, Newcastle had way more territory um, and possession than Manchester United. It was on the 2nd of April. Um, Willock in the 65th minute, Callum Wilson in the 88th minute. It does say here, Newcastle 45% possession, Manchester United 55% possession. Ah, but this is probably what I was looking at. Shots 22 to Newcastle, 6 to Manchester United. So, sorry, I wasn't looking at possession. I was probably looking at stats. I was watching the game and looking at shots and shots on target. Newcastle 6 shots on target, Manchester United 1. And I think they were... Newcastle were favourites in play, but not massive favourites. And so the fact that they were odds against 2.48 with that... With, with with the number of shots that they were getting against Manchester United with relatively even possession, I just went on them. I mean, I won't lie; it was a little bit. It was Newcastle, but I do, I, te- I tend not to just bet on Newcastle blindly. You know, I'm I, I, I'm just paying more attention because I'm watching the match, and that one was an in play bet that I gauged that two point four eight wasn't the correct price. Um, Everton versus Tottenham. First goal scorer, I had Big Harry Kane, 5.2 after. That was 33 minutes before kickoff. Sorry, it was a, it was a 40 quarter two kickoff, so it was 18 minutes before kickoff. I got the 5.2, a rare kind of headline striker of a shorter price that I made to be down at 4.6, so plenty of value there. Leicester Manchester, sorry, Leicester versus Aston Villa, Dewsbury Hall uh, to be carded. So. The cards um, model fell under the player stats, and um, I've actually undertaken a big review of us, um, the team to undertake a big review of the player stats model and just suggest some improvements. Um, we've lost the player cards because we were taking them from bookmakers going um, yes and no, and we had two of them, and um, one of them has got such good defences, we can no longer scrape them. And the other one has just gone yes on every side. So we don't have the no. So I need an alternative source. We've got one, I think a Maltese bookmaker, but then we now have to do a review of how sharp those numbers are. Um, I liked the player cards. I was just going to toy a little bit with um, the fave long shot bias on that because I think when we're looking at... um, other lines like shots and target where the over-under hovers around the evens. Um, it could be fair to say that there's not a lot of bias on either side. When it's played to be carded, yes, no, and the yes is 6-1, to one, I think it's fair to say that almost all of the margin is on the yes and none of it is on the no. And so there was a little bit of sharpening of um, the normal, uh, sorry, the margin application in player to be carded. Um, but I, I've, I've actually enjoyed hitting quite a few player-to-be cards um, in the last month or so, like going on the exchange. What I want as well, this is the other thing that I wanted whilst I think about this, I wanted to bring in the normalisation that we have in um, the player XG tool to, for an added edge on Bookie Bashing, because what the bookmakers do is exactly the same with AGS. They set the price of every player, assuming that they're all starting from the beginning of the day. And if you back a substitute 30 minutes before kickoff, he'll be the same price for AGS or to get a card and boo-ha to you if he comes on in the 88th minute. It's kind of... I it's 
I think there's a business plan there to revamp how that works to be more fair to the punter. You know, I think like there's so much edge taken by the bookmaker there um, that isn't commonly understood. And it's like, why can't you just not like either refund players that don't start? Maybe there's something I haven't thought about about that with the bookmaker or offer enhanced prices for substitutes after kickoff. Uh, Sorry, team news. If the players start on the bench, I want a higher price for him. Um, No bookmaker does that, but. I would be tempted to because when players are benched that you've still got expected playing time for them. There's nothing out of the realms of mathematics to offer really, really big odds on players that are on the bench to get a card. And if they play no part of the game, you void it. And if they play one minute, well, you've got to suck it up, you know? Anyway, um, I wanted to bring the normalization because we know the total expected cards for the match. We know the booking points for the match. So I wanted to take the starting... 22, because now we've got to include goalkeeper for things like cards. And I wanted to normalize um, the match cards minus anything we would allocate to substitutes across that starting 22 and then hit the exchange. I mean, there's plenty of liquidity on the... Well, not plenty, but there's more liquidity on the exchange these days for these markets like player to be carded. So a lot of games don't even have the player stat in them just now. What are we often under in player stats? We're okay with tackles, shots, shots on target. What was the other one? The other one, assists. Um, cards, for some reason, it was on the Fiorentina game yesterday, but none of the Champions League games and none of the Premier League games. Um, we're going to bring it back. We just need to do a little bit of work on it. So that's happening in the background just now. I enjoy it, though. I don't know why. I enjoy watching a game and I'm on player to be carded and then like he, he like as a late foul and someone like yeah come on get him come on ref yellow out. Um, Manchester United versus Everton team to score the first goal. Um, I don't know why this was so good. I was messing around. I was messing around in the last ten minutes of the match, and then I saw on the exchange that team to score the first goal was up at 1.71 that felt like a lot for Man United against a bad Everton so I went on to the bet builder if you go on to XG and then select Man United or one of the teams you can then change um, the stat to like um, from over to first you can have over between under and first I managed to score first in that game was like 1.71 three 1.32 i didn't actually record it but yeah it was down in the early 1.3s and um i actually put it up on the tracker for the first 15 minutes of the match because it wouldn't have changed that much because the equation for it is um manchester united xg divided by match xg minus nil nil and nil nil in that match was quite high so the minus nil nil wouldn't have affected it that much um but yeah i don't know why i do not know why it was probably probably like Bet365 or somebody that I hadn't noticed had done like a mega boost on Manchester United to score the first goal. But the exchange price was huge and really liquid as well. So I was all over that. I mean, I'm not going to boom that winning because it was a 1.3 shot and it won. And I think I was on it four different prices, 1.7, 1.68, 1.8 and 1.8 were the four prices that I took. Technically three prices, but I took the 1.8 twice. Um, similarly, um, just because it was on my mind, same day I was on Spurs to score the first goal in their match versus um, Brighton and Hove Albion, and they did at 2.3. Brentford Toon, I was looking for value. I just happened to be on the Toon side, forgive me. It was on Toon to win and both teams to score. Toon to win and over 2.5 at 3.6. And Toon to win and over 3.5, which I 
don't remember the odds of, but that didn't win because it was 2-1 Newcastle United. They had a goal um, cancelled out as well. So um, that was like, must remember, I was talking to someone on a clinic call that I take Newcastle to win and both teams to score. Take Newcastle to win and over 2.5. Take Newcastle to win and over 3.5. And remember when you plug it into your bet history, that's all one bet, like in terms of a sample size. You know, if Newcastle had won 3-1, they all would have won, but technically I'm having one bet there. Am I overstaking? Of course, because that's what happens when you stake across different markets. It's easy to do. Um, Southampton versus Manchester United. I Sorry, Southampton versus Manchester City. I had City to win an over 4.5 goals in that match, uh, and that was the perfect 4-1 with um, Alvarez getting the penalty in the 75th minute. Never in doubt. That was 5.7 back. Sometimes in those... Winner and over goals markets. There is a little bit of value hanging around um, leading up to kickoff. Can't tell you why. And then um, last, I had a few days off for Portugal. And then this week, um, the goal scorers have been hitting. I had Victor Osime. Osime? Osmien? Osmehen? Osimhen. Yeah, him. Uh, 2.56. And when normalized three, he was down at 2.3 on my. Normalised AGS, um, so he, you know, scored for Napoli versus Milan. Didn't score first, though, and I was looking at Giroud first, but he wasn't value. That was one of those where I was desperately trying to get something for Giroud. Like, any time goal scorer, first goal scorer, two plus, three plus. Just couldn't, just couldn't find it anywhere. And then, like, he had a penalty and missed it, and I was like, hooray, the bet that I did, wanted to get on didn't win. And then he then he scored shortly afterwards in the first half after that. Bloody Giroud, the good-looking bastard. And uh, Bayern Munich versus um, Manchester City. Um, Eric, the Haaland Haaland. I was on him, yes. I was also on him 2 plus and 3 plus. Um, he didn't get the 2 plus and 3 plus. Havertz was one I was talking to someone midweek who was also on AGS 2 plus and 3 plus. Didn't get a goal in the game. So there's the context of they don't all win. I am just going through the winners today. But um, yeah, it's nice. It's nice being on Haaland. He was on a penalty and a miss. So I thought, well, this is definitely going to lose. But he was two point three to back. It wasn't even that. That wasn't a big bet. It was two point one eight to um, fair AGS after the normalised stuff. So yeah, um, it's been a it's been an okay month in the football. But I hope that brings a little bit of the decision making about where I was getting the the football thought processes through where i'm going to concentrate going forward i've spoken to someone who is running um um the the best roi is running on the player xg tool after team news just now and i think i have to have a big push about where the edges are going to come from i personally don't like touching it before team news um now there are games on there that don't have team news for example the europa conference league the scottish premier league we put them up there but we don't have the team news coming through the api so they'll never be they'll never be normalized so they're there if you like as a point of interest but they've got every player on there and come team news the players that aren't playing they stay on there i'm really only interested in Games that have team news, and I'm only interested after normalization now because that is where I see the edges appearing. Now, in the last three or four weeks, we've had a couple of hiccups with the tool technological side of the tool where um, I think it loses its feed at unfortunate times such as 2 p.m. on a Saturday, which is exactly when 
multiple normalizations would be occurring. A lot of work's going into fixing that. Touch wood, tomorrow will be okay. If it's not okay, we will get there. Because it's one of those things where it only happens at the busiest of times, probably because it's the busiest of times. So it's difficult to replicate outside of that. So you have to fix it on the fly, if you know what I mean. Um, but personally, I can now, I'm getting a clear picture of where the edge is. And the edge is really, in games, okay, you've got FGS 2+, plus and 3+, plus, which could really be in any game, but are sharper after normalization. It's the AGS where the exchange is has got it wrong. Because those people on the exchange setting those prices, I don't think they're sharp enough to be bringing in team news and then making sure that their XG is right at the end of that. In fact, I know they're not from what I've seen. We had Liverpool Leeds the other day, which was just like every player was value. Um, we had Manchester City, Bayern Munich, every player was value to back. We had um, France versus Ireland, where every player was value to lay. It's actually always going to be every player is value and every player is not value. But if it's thin, it kind of is a little bit of noise. The signal happens when it's significant. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for games where the exchange markets are liquid and they've got it wrong. And in those games we then can go and target with a lot of confidence the AGS market as well as FGS 2 plus 3 plus Steam. There's no need to be afraid, said um, that legendary man Tony Mortimer off of East 17. Steamers in betting, in a fluid betting market anyway, uh, odds will change in response to the weight of money on the different possible outcomes for that market. And if there is more money on the backside than the lay side, if that outcome sees more interest than the lay, the price will shorten and the other will lengthen. A shortening price is called a steamer, lengthening price is called a drifter. Um, now, when betting markets open, early places reflect on the limited number of options about the possible outcomes for that market, and consequently the early prices are less likely to accu accurately reflect the true price. The closing line is deemed to be the closest thing that we have to an accurate representation of the true price, the fair price. Right. Um, as we get from the opening price to the fair price, the price will bounce around. If the opening price is higher than the fair price, then that has steamed in. But along the way, there may be steams and there may be drifts. And really where we see, where we benchmark the determination of the starting and the end point of when we look at the change in price determines whether it's a steamer or a drifter. The same thing could be a steamer or a drifter, different points of its life cycle um in the coupons tracker we generally bet and have been profitable on the concept of steamers steamers and held prices on there we're always betting on say the top five six seven um football teams in markets that have steamed in and we're avoiding the drifters and generally the argument is that 
if we're jumping on something that is steaming, on average, it hasn't stopped steaming. On average, when we jump on when it's steaming, it should continue to steam more often than it drifts. Of course, we could just catch it at that point where it just drifts from there on in, but it's the average over a, a large number of football teams. So this is why we do seven teams and we do the trebles of those teams and we do multiple coupons over weeks and months and years as opposed to just sort of placing seven teams and expecting that coupon to particularly win. Some people very much advocate the betting on steamers. Some people provide even services where you can jump on steamers and identify them sort of with a service provider. I mean, outside of bookie bashing, um, the teams that I've been in for the longer than a decade have definitely been targeting steamers and very profitable at that. Others are less um, confident. Um, sometimes I think that people involved in analytics but not in betting um, can be quite confident um, uh, one way or another. Um Jack Houghton wrote in an article in 2008 on steamers and drifters and Betfair that he did not have much time for the steamer hypothesis, analyzing a sample of 65,000 runners running in 2006, a big sample size. He noted the price two hours before the off and compared them to the starting prices. And then he categorized steamers as those runners whose odds had shortened by at least 5% and drifters, those whose odds had lengthened by the same amount. And he found that from £10 level staking, the steamers would have lost nearly £3,500, whilst the drifters would have won nearly 2310 Now, why he's doing £10 level staking is anybody's guess, because you have an interesting thing there. I don't know what the sample size were, where 5% um, were steamers, uh, or sorry, the prices changed by 5%. But, I mean, any any drifter that went up to 100 to 1 and then won really skews that data set, no matter how big it is under the sample under the smaller sample size of those runners. Um, we're unable to calculate yields because he didn't provide the proportion of 65,000 runners that were steamers and drifters. And furthermore, he doesn't make it clear which price has been used to calculate those returns, the starting price or the price two hours before the off. So clearly, without a time machine, we are not in a position to know whether every price will continue to steam for the next two hours. Calculating the returns using those original prices would essentially just be a hypothetical result. Um, and yet, returning a loss to starting prices from steamers does not necessarily imply that we wouldn't return a profit from the pre-steamed betting odds, you know? Like, obviously, by the time... The idea is that we're trying to get odds that are higher that uh, than the closing price. So if we were going by the closing price then I wouldn't be surprised if it was break-even, a little bit of a loss, a little bit of a win. So I don't have a lot of time for Jack Houghton's argument. And also that was horse racing in 2006. It is 17 years since then. And Joseph Bookdahl also did an analysis. He compared closing market average bookmaker prices for all professional English league football matches during 2010-11, 2011-12. I've got a lot of time for Joseph Bookdahl. He's a very clever, analytical better. He looked at those seasons and took the average price collected in advance of the start times. Um, contained 2,036 matches, so 4,072 teams. Um, there was 12,000 betting selections, presumably including the draw. Um, the closing prices were provided by the odds comparison oddsportal.com and the pre-closing prices came from the odds comparison betbrain.com. Um, there were a couple of limitations, and he's very, unlike Jack, he's very open about the limitations of his analyses. Um, uh, he says here, 
with with data from BetBrain collected on Friday afternoons. A Friday evening match started within a few hours of the time the odds were collected. For the re- remainder of the weekend, a larger time period existed, so the steam drift time wasn't equal, and I can understand how that's a problem, but it's also a legitimate problem for ordinary bettors in ordinary betting sample sizes as well. So um, um, whilst it's notable that this inconsistency is raised, it's actually, I think, making it a more accurate, not a more inaccurate analysis. Um, yeah, the average price of all home wins, draws, and away wins um, was very close, actually, 3.186 and 3.195. Um, uh, so it's certainly not significantly different, suggesting that at least the use of two different data sources had probably influenced the results in any meaningful way. So um, if we have a look at the win expectancy change, which is basically the way delineating steamers and drifters. There were 5,730 steamers, 6,477 drifters. Um, if it steamed, it steamed in by about 1%, and if it drifted, it drifted by about 12%. It's a little bit of a difference there. Um, but the yield was negative on both. The yield was twice as bad on the drifters though as the steamers so uh, blindly backing every steamer but at the archive pre-closing prices would have lost the better about 1.24 percent on turnover by contrast backing every drifter would have lost them over 12 percent the difference is highly significant that's a p-value of 0.00002 and on 962 occasions the win expectancy increased by more than two percent so it would have actually turned a profit of nearly seven percent provided of course we'd known that these selectors would steam more than two percent so if we'd known at the beginning that these were going to be the steamers there'd be that profit of course we can't know that we can only know it's steaming when it starts to steam and we don't know if it's going to continue to steam and this is the issue with all these analyses they're just assuming the opening price to the closing price or the 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 timestamp price to the closing price we kind of have to jump into any analysis of betting um um and uh, if we're looking at a data set from a server provider, such as Bucky Bashing, we need to start the clock at a particular moment. And then in the middle of that time period and the closing line, designate a time where we want to ask, is this steaming or is it drifting? And then we want to jump on it and assume that we're still going to have a steamer by closing line. And it's not always going to be the case. But it's very interesting that in Bookdale's analysis, whilst both were negative, meaning that you know there, there was no outcome, there was no data set there that would have returned a positive ROI, um, one was seven times or eight times, the drifters were eight times worse than the steamers. Um, I like his analysis a lot more than Jack's analysis, a lot more detailed. If you want to know more about that, you can have a look at sportstradingnetwork.com where I think the URL is steamers provide edge analysis English one times two football betting market. Now that's a long time ago, that analysis. We have the coupons tracker at Bucky Bashing, but um, in terms of a bespoke tool that looks at steamers and drifters, it's been something that's been um, a plan for a number of years, and I do a lot of this betting mainly on football, not so much on horse racing, um, in the background 
to begin with for an R&D, I've got to ask what kind of markets do people want to look at? And that's not for me to know. Now, personally, it's not for me to uh, dictate, I don't think. Personally, my own personal feeling, horse racing is a bad market to identify ROI, uh, look for edges in steaming um, and drifting. And one of my... by, this by no means is conclusive. Um, it's my logical train of thought that I'm very open that, to the fact that it could be wrong. But horse racing markets are populated by a number of different people, none of which I think I, I can categorize myself as. Those people are uh, God's compilers that look at form and weight and jockey trainer combination and all of that to come up with the original price. You have connections who um, uh, have had a phone call that the horse has got the flu and therefore the price is n- no longer valid and to lay the hell out of this horse. And then you have a lot of traders, a lot of trading communities who I think many of whom do not have an idea of what the fair price can be, but they jump on horse racing because of the fluctuations of the price. And look, in these trading communities, most of it is a zero-sum game. Most people trading on horses, it's a zero-sum game. By zero-sum, I mean that the money going in is equal to the money coming out minus the commission taken by the platform providers, the exchange platform providers. Um, there's probably going to be a small number of winners and a large number of losers. So this, the money is the same. And a lot of these traders that are coming in, some like with, within the Venn diagram of traders, perhaps 50-50. Perhaps 50% are winning and 50% are losing, a little bit the same in cryptocurrency. Um, some got lucky, we're going to remove those. And so we're just looking at the people day in, day out. So those that are losing are less likely to be vocal than those that are winning. And so that you may therefore hear more from those that are winning. Did those that are winning win from skill? Did they notice patterns in the price changes that they were able to jump on or did they win because they were lucky um and if they won because they were lucky do they have self-confirmation bias that it was nothing to do with luck it was to do with the skill of them determining that they knew where the price was going to go you can only win in trading if you're going to make an assessment that something is going to go up or down i'm sure a few people can do it i'm not quite sure the number of people doing it have that skill set. And also if the number of people that were doing it had that skill set, who is it that's losing money? If all of these traders are successful and they all know that horse A is going to drift and continue to drift, who is it that's on the other side of the bet? How many losers are there exactly if there are all of these winners? They cannot, everyone can't be winning. Someone's got to be losing. So... I don't like the horse racing markets because I think the prices have so much noise in them because of the traders. And I think the traders are really throwing a lot of random darts, a lot of random darts. So horse racing isn't for me. I like football. I also like other sports, although the liquidity in things like rugby in evening, you know, you know golf outside of the majors, early doors, it's very difficult to get prices moving and and by the time they've moved they've moved and you've missed the boat whereas at least in something like league one football something can drift and just continue to steadily drift as smart money continues to back against it or back for it so it's not for me to say what sports and markets 
we should be identifying, which was making it slightly difficult for me in creating a tool. So we've done an R&D little project. And if you want to know more about how it works, go to Latest News. And I've got a little article in the Latest News, a video on there, exactly what we've done and a video on how to use it. It is Steam Drift tracking on private trackers. Um, so... Your private tracker, you can send bets via the Bet Builder. Go to the Bet Builder and you can choose any of Betfair Exchange, Best Bookmaker Price, or the Bookie Bashing Line. So Betfair Exchange, any of the sports under Betfair Exchange, Best Bookmaker Price. We've got a feed. So, I mean, that's essentially like bringing up rugby anytime try scorer, which you won't get any liquidity on the exchange. But there's like a, it's like having odds checker on the Bet Builder, that. And you can just set some guy up. And then if he starts to be cut across the board at the bookmakers, you'll know because he's steaming in. Will he drift? Be interesting. Be quite interesting to set up um, a private tracker with a load of anytime try scorers and then just see if any drift or if they just steam because the prices are shortening. Um, and then, you, of course, you've got the bookie bashing lines. And so within there, we can look at um, the match XGs, the cards, the corners, or any combination, a combo bet. So cards and corners and a half. Um Player XGs, score casts, win cast, score first, score unders. Um, we've got darts 180s. We've got handicaps. So go into the rugby tool or the rugby or the American football or even the snooker and get the handicaps and see if um, they're drifting uh, the totals and the player stats. And any of these can be set up and then just toggle um, from live bet to steam drift traffic, steam drift track and what will happen is when you send that bet it will send the same back odds as the fair odds right the back odds will always stay the same the back odds are the odds at which you're benchmarking that bet at that moment in time go and play golf disappear for five hours come back the fair odds may change i mean if the price price hasn't moved if you put up an anytime try scorer at by best bookmaker price he hasn't been cut anywhere it's gonna be exactly the same but if he does move then uh, if it's been cut, the fair odds are going to come down. It's going to be plus EV. If he has drifted, again, with best bookmaker price, don't think that's going to happen, but other databases it will, his fair odds are going to go up. It's going to be negative EV. So that is steam drift tracking. Um, we're not going to put them on uh, the bet tracker as of yet. They're only available to put on private trackers. I'm putting them on my private trackers quite frequently, um, and you can do any benchmarking on your own. And I'm just going to sit on this little R&D project for a couple of months. And perhaps it might be useful enough or valuable enough to make a dedicated tool that looks at steam drift tracking across every market, um, whether it's bookie bashing lines, whether it is our own in-house models, you know, but I mean by that, whether it's best price um across bookmakers or whether it's on the exchange so it'd be quite interesting to get any feedback from anybody that starts using that to see if it's useful or not but that is um a little bit on new tool and something that i'm looking at the steam drift tracking at bookie bash <laughs> story time there was a betting coup in the early 90s that um, was really impressive and netted about £500,000. Now, you might argue £500,000 not that impressive. We've had uh, recent wins of £440,000 and £850,000 at bookie bashing. And whilst that's true off a single bet, 
in the early 90s, we didn't quite have the technology. There was a lot of logistical solving. And so it's not so much the amount of money, which is still quite cool. I mean, it's quite neat to win half a million pounds. Um, and by the way, in early 90s, worth loads more um, than it is just now. But it, what I admire here is the way that these guys went about this, um, solved the logistics, worked out the edge, and more importantly than working out the edge, worked out how to exploit it. You see, when availability is low, effort is high and complexity is high, that's the trifecta of where gambling can become extremely lucrative but also extremely, extremely difficult. And these kind of edges are not the kind of things that could ever be replicated across a service provider and a community. It's the kind of thing that you and your buddy, you, you see it, you find it, and you nail it, and you kill it within an inch of its life, and you take it all for yourself, and good for you as well. The two buddies were John Carter and Paul Simons, not exactly amateurs, novices. Uh, one was a former betting shop manager, John Carter, Paul Simons. Um, before he got together with Peter Gabriel, maybe a different Paul Simons, was an on-course bookmaker's clerk. Both were in their early 30s and from Essex. And they loved looking at a little bit of golf. Now, early 90s, dial-up internet. Was it even early 90s for dial-up internet? I don't know, but few people had it. They weren't looking on the internet. They studied the British newspaper library for hole-in-one statistics. And uh, the statistics at the British newspaper library showed that the major firms had a long history of burning their fingers in novel hole-in-one markets on major golf events. In 1979, Ladbrokes laid and lost £8,000 to £800 bet in the Benton Hedges, 10 to 1. Uh, and a whopping £40,000 to £1,000 when another hole-in-one one fell in the second hole at the World Match Place, a 40-to-1 bet at 1979. I mean, 10-to-1, 40-to-1, crazy. Coral laid £300 at 33-to-1 in 1984's Lawrence Batley Golf International at the Belfry, a course which had a 194-yard 14th hole, 33-to-1. Further study, this time in specialist golf magazines, showed that at most European tour events, the statistical likelihood of a hole-in-one hovered around even money. Now, this is in the 90s. So these 33-to-1s, these 10-to-1s, uh, these were a little bit earlier. Um, the guys, though, actually narrowed their field of view. They didn't want to look at all events all european events they narrowed it down to the five that were the most likely to have a hole in one these were the british and european and u.s opens the volvo pga and the benson and hedges international and the guys made these about i've done I, i've taken their bets and worked out what they thought the equity was and i make that they made it was about 1.7 um so what's that about 40-odd percent. Alexa, what's um, 1.7 to the power of minus 1? Sorry, I didn't catch that. Thanks. Alexa. Oh, God. She, do you know what? Don't care. I'm going to go with 40%. Um, I'm now actually uh, just 
doing it on my phone. I mean, I'm editing this out, obviously. Yeah, for, sorry, my, my brain works in, for some reason, my brain was working the other side of it. It's 40% not to happen. It's 60% to happen or 58.9% not to happen, okay? Um, so they knew that it was about 40% of the time it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> Let me offer that one. 58.9% it was going to happen. So what do you do now? How do you bet on it? Um, the big three at the time were Ladbrokes, Coral, and William Hill, and they were wide awake to the probability of a hole-in-one and would only offer the going rate for relatively small stakes. So, odds checker wasn't around. Betfred, Paddy Power, all of those were decades away from gobbling up the privateers. So, they went back to the library, and this time they picked up Ilford's public library, where they photocopied the addresses of 2,000 independent bookmakers from 50 regional volumes of the good old Yellow Pages. And then they had 200 towns and cities and they put them into some sort of order and bought two dozen a to z roadmaps because remember back in the day where you didn't have google maps you literally had a roadmap in your car well they had 24 a to z roadmaps in order to create itineraries allowing them to visit as many betting shops as possible during the course of their stay because they knew that they could find five to one to ten to one on hole and one in a tournament at these bookmakers when the odds were one point, well, they were odds on, 1.72, which, by the way, is about 40%, the other side of this. So their itinerary, these chaps, would have taken them to 35 shops a day in the early 90s, which is a military-style operation, right at the end of Cheltenham Festival in mid-March. Then they would conclude in Manchester in June. Um, they would have visited every independent betting shop in England and southern Wales, and Sussex was going to be their starting point. Now, what kind of bets are they going to place? So they got five tournaments, odds of 1.72. What would you do? Singles, of course, would be nice, but they went with compounding the value. They went with trebles, because if they could find a bookmaker that if they had... 10 pound hole in one trebles would offer them 13,310 pounds on what is essentially a 92 shot and with 2,000 bookmakers doors to walk through could they find any that would be offering that high they had to get the exact sort of 10 11 to 1 on every single event remember Fair odds, 1.72. Day one, bookmaker won, an immediate success. The Chichester-based gunning bookmakers accepted a heap of double on the outcome of each event at 5 to 1 apiece. So they're getting 36.0, 6 times 6, 36.0, 35 to 1 on uh, essentially a 2.95 shot. Just, you know, your average, what is that, 1,220% EV bet. <laughs> I mean, not too bad. And they only needed just two of the five to come off for that. But in truth, there was no saying what odds they would get and what beds that would be accepted later that afternoon. They found a bookie that had no interest in laying multiple bets, but was happy to take singles and offered 25 to 1 on four events. And furthermore, he was happy to lay Simons and Carter £250 on each. So that was a potential... £25,000 win for them 
I mean, that's nuts, isn't that? That's crazy. It's not every... Now, of course, 25 to 1 on a 1.72 shot. What do you think is going to happen in 2023 in this day and age? Well, for starters, it'd never be 25 to 1. Um, not every day was successful the duo for the duo, and it would appear that only one shop in 10 would entertain them in any way, shape, or form. So they've got 2,000 shops, but 9 out of 10 aren't not giving them any business but for those that did it was like a game of mystery bingo they simply never knew what they were going to get seven to four was the shortest price they ever took placing a five-fold acker that'll be seven to four in each of them and 100 to one was the greatest odds they were given and that particular shop accepted five 50 pound win singles a 30p super yankee was amongst the best cluster bets they got <laughs> With all of them priced up at seven to one, at eight point zero and one point seven two, so a thirty p super Yankee. But by the time they had finished their bookmaker tour of the country, they had a suitcase full of slips, ranging from two hundred pounds at sixty six to one to a tenner super Yankee on the five pins at three to one apiece. At each and every shop where they were offered favourable odds. They carefully observed the shop's max limit payout, which was, for the most part, £25,000. Once all was down, said and done, by the time tens of thousands of miles were on the clock, just one winner, considering their 100-to-1 and 66-to-1 win singles, would put them ahead. And if it came in the first event, which was the 1991 Benson Hedges International Open, they would be free rolling on a fortune. They would have recovered their stakes. They would be a little bit uh, ahead. And they've got four events to get a hole in one to make an absolute stockpile of money. Now, have you ever heard of Jay Townsend? The little known American golfer aced the 202-yard 11th hole at St. Melian and Simons and Carter. We'll never forget him because the boys were off to a fire. They got their money back after the first tournament, and whilst it was the time to celebrate the perfect one-from-one one record, their professionalism remained intact. They stayed at the course long after proceedings had finished to collect an official copy of the player's scorecard as documented proof of his achievement in case there was any shenanigans from the bookmaker. The next day, they purchased a copy of every national and local newspaper looking for a report on the feat and sent the news along with a photocopy of the scorecard to the Sporting Life newspaper and golfing publications. They wanted no squabbles when it came to collecting and this proof was vital to them. As it happened, they did have no problem and a round of funding, visiting shops which had taken win singles on the Benson and Hedges, actually saw them invest yet more money. Spectrum Racing, based in Brighton but with a shop in Southampton, had particularly suicidal tendencies paying out £660 for a successful £60 win single, they allowed the hole-in-one gang to reinvest their winnings with six £50 doubles on the next four tournaments, offering 10 to 1 on an ace happening at any one. By mid-August, the bookmakers were screaming. The first four tournaments had all resulted in a hole-in-one, and many bookmakers were crying their eyes out whilst also having a hissy fit. The sporting... Life, who ran an arbitration service called the Green Seal Service, reported a mass of phone calls from independent bookmakers who said they were duped and they were not going to pay. The Sun newspaper jumped on the bandwagon, cheering Simons and Carter 
all the way whilst discrediting the bookmakers who had already said they were only going to honour wages at the correct odds of 6 to 4 or 7 to 4. Don Butler, the director of the National Association of Bookmakers, said he was going to open up a national helpline to assist his beleaguered members. And then shit hit the fan on August the 29th when Miguel Angel Jimenez, the legendary cigar-smoking Spanish golfer, dropped in a hole-in-one at the 17th at Walton Heath, the home of the European Open. The fifth and final leg was home. Hosed and cluster bombs were landing in little betting shops all over the country. Ultimately, the hole-in-one gang won in excess of half a million pounds. Maybe 1.3 million in today's money. When him and his ball went straight into the cup. And after a little wrangling, in most cases, Simons and Carter got paid their full legitimate winnings from scores of small shops who handed over winnings with red faces and a congratulatory handshake. There were several hit for over £20,000. Alas, some did not fare quite as well with the loss. Spectrum's six £50 doubles at 10 to 1, after it was blatantly obvious they were offering the incorrect price, proved too much for them and the owner fled without paying. In total, £85,000 in winnings proved to be unrecoverable despite long legal battles and help from organisations such as the National Association for the Protection for Punters. To this day, gambling debts are not retrievable by a court of law in the UK, and so Simons and Carter took the last resort of objecting to the annual renewal of shop licences of a handful of blatant dodgers in pursuit of their winnings. If you want to know more about this, they wrote a 1993 book, The Hole-in-One Gang, where they said some people may wonder why we should pursue bookmakers when in some instances little cash was involved. There were many points of principle at stake, the main one being why should reputable bookies pay up and the whingers be allowed to escape? The hole-in-one gang, true gambling heroes. I am hopeful that on the next Bashcast I can bring you a modern day real life gambling hero this is Tom signing out